Welcome everyone to another episode of The Forum. Uh, today we're going to be talking about climate change and armed conflict and we have with us Clementine Rendell, the Regional Legal Advisor for the Pacific at the ICRC. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about this, uh, the notion of the environment and the armed conflict and armed conflict and the ways in which they interact and the ways in which the laws of war protect the environment. So um, can we just start by you giving us like an introduction about how does IHL protect the natural environment during an armed conflict? Absolutely. So, look, a certain amount of environmental damage is expected in times of warfare, um, but that damage is not unlimited. And so importantly, the rules of international humanitarian law, or IHL, uh, seek to protect the natural environment in times of armed conflict uh, and to limit the damage caused in those times. Um, so they do that uh, with both specific rules geared towards the protection of the environment uh, specifically, and then also there are a number of general rules of IHL that also protect the environment without that being their specific purpose. So I wanted to ask um, to what extent uh, these rules of war are actually effective in protecting the environment. So as you mentioned, um, it's kind of seen as unavoidable that there will be environmental damage in an armed conflict. Um, so what extent are they, are they effective in actually protecting the environment in the way we would want the environment to be protected? So the ICRC as the guardian of IHL has been promoting the need to enhance respect for these rules uh, since the early 1990s. Uh, and we developed guidelines uh, to support states in their training of military personnel uh, back in 1994, actually. Um, but almost 30 years later, we still see the devastating environmental consequences of war and the impact that that then also has on populations in conflict. Uh, too often the environment is attacked directly or incidentally damaged by means and methods of warfare, uh, and it's further impacted by damage and destruction to the built environment. Uh, and those consequences for conflict-affected populations are severe and complex and threaten their well-being and their survival. Um, and it's even more so in, in situations where that environmental damage is combined with uh, climate risks or climate shocks. Um, for us, so the, for us, the concern is not so much the effectiveness of the laws, it's the effectiveness of, of their implementation. Um, and so we, we really see the need to continue to work to, uh, uh, enhance understanding and respect for these rules and other rules uh, of international law that protect the natural environment. Um, in that vein, uh, let's recall uh, that the standard rules in terms of respect for IHL, implementation and dissemination, those rules also apply when it comes to protecting the environment. Uh, so if we take, for example, the obligation to respect and ensure respect for international humanitarian law found in Article 1 of the Geneva Conventions, uh, the rules relating to national implementation of IHL and the repression of war crimes. Uh, so, for example, the obligation to repress war crimes of widespread long-term and severe damage to the environment in international armed conflicts, um, as well as some of the other rules uh, against, for example, pillaging or for employing poison and, and poison 
poisoned weapons. Um, uh, and then finally as well, uh, another example is the obligation to provide instruction to the armed forces on their IHL obligations. And so in that same vein, uh, states should be providing instruction to uh, personnel on the obligations with respect to the protection of the environment. What are the general and the specific rules in IHL which protect the natural environment and the ways in which they can be invoked? Um, so there are a number of rules that uh, provide specific protection to the natural environment as such. So that's their specific purpose. Um, that includes rules on the prohibition of means and methods of warfare that may cause widespread long-term and severe damage to the natural environment, uh, the prohibition of the destruction of the natural environment as a weapon, uh, as well as the prohibition of attacking the natural environment by way of reprisal. Um, those are what we might consider to be the most extreme and obvious examples of environmental damage. Um, but they aren't the only rules. There are also a number of general rules of IHL that serve to protect the environment without that necessarily being uh, their specific purpose. Uh, and those rules have to some extent been overlooked and at times underapplied. Uh, if I have a look at those general rules, um, First of all, it's generally recognised today that by default the natural environment is civilian in character. And on that basis, we see that all parts of the natural environment are civilian objects unless specific parts become military objectives by virtue of their location, purpose or use. So that means that all parts of the natural environment uh, enjoy the protection of the general rules of IHL that protect uh, civilian objects. So the principles of distinction, proportionality and precautions, as well as the rules on enemy property. So, for example, uh, prohibiting pillage. Um, so those rules... Uh, already exist and they're well known and applied by uh, armed groups as well as state armed forces uh, around the world. But what we have increasingly done with the aid of our updated guidelines on the protection of the natural environment uh, is to put the spotlight on how those rules should apply in relation to the environment. Um, so, for example, in assessing the proportionality of an attack, actors should be considering the expected incidental harm to the natural environment, um, both in so immediate and, and longer term. Uh, another example is uh, the precautionary measures that should be taken. Uh, so, for example, to factor in the environmental impact in the selection of weaponry. There are also some protections uh, that are provided by the rules on specially protected objects other than the natural environment. Uh, so, for example, prohibitions uh, regarding works and installations containing dangerous forces like dams or nuclear power stations, uh, as well as uh, objects indispensable to the survival of the civilian population. So, if we recall that um, you know attacks on arable land on water sources have a really significant impact on uh, the civilian population. And so, you know, there are regulations or prohibitions on attacks against those indispensable objects. But those objects are also part of the natural environment. So it's an indirect protection in that respect. 
Um, and then the third uh, category of these general IHL rules that can be relevant are some of the additional protections uh, that can be used to enhance uh, the protection of the environment in specific circumstances. So here in particular, we see the possibility to conclude additional agreements, uh, either in peacetime or during conflict, to protect particular sites or areas. Um, there are also the protections of uh, cultural property. So where cultural property is also a natural site, then there's that indirect uh, protection there. Um, and as well, uh, there is the uh, possibility to agree on additional works or installations uh, containing dangerous forces, uh, which would again provide an additional layer of protection. Uh, and then finally, um, we have uh, rules on specific weapons uh, that also indirectly protect the natural environment. So the prohibition of using uh, poison or poisoned weapons, biological and chemical weapons, and now with a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons. Um, there are also rules on incendiary weapons uh, and rules on landmines, as well as on uh, minimising the impact of explosive remnants of war. Um, so these are rules uh, that are geared towards specific uh, types of weapons and specific uses of those, of those weapons that have an indirect protective effect for the natural environment. And I think, um, I think in terms of the gaps in the legal framework, um, in terms of both the, the specific and the non-specific rules, so if we look at Article 35 and Article 55 of Additional Protocol 1, what you were talking about, the widespread severe and long-term damage, uh, the requirements that all three of these cumulative conditions be met, um, there's a lot of people who argue that it's excessively restrictive, it's incredibly, it's an incredibly high threshold. Um, and when we look at the history of why Additional Protocol 1 was even negotiated and the defoliation in Vietnam by Agent Orange, um, a lot of people are arguing that even that wouldn't satisfy these conditions because, because the requirement that it be long-term is, so, um, is so high, it requires it to, to go on for decades. Um, so, so what are those gaps and how, can they be filled in any way in terms of having a lower threshold or trying to meet it? Because I remember in um, the Eritrea Ethiopia Claims Commission, they held then that it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be met. Um, and even the ICTY, they also said um, that, you know, uh, the, the threshold is so high that we can't, we can't say that the bombing of oil installations, et cetera, would be, would be met by Articles 35 and 55. Certainly those provisions, part of those specific rules, um, like you identified, do set a relatively high threshold. Um, and they are what I might consider the more specific, extreme and, and obvious examples of environmental damage. Um, and so IHL treats those by, you know, explicitly prohibiting them. Um, one thing I would say on, the, on those rules uh, is that some of the assessments required are informed by what we now know about the longer-term impacts of environmental damage. Um, so, for example, uh, the prohibition of, of uh, attacks uh, that could be expected to cause widespread long-term and severe damage. That expectation is informed by what we now know about um, the, the spread of damage, you know, the, the um, downstream effects, if you like, 
of damage. And so with that knowledge, which continues to grow, that needs to be incorporated into further assessments. Um, so there is some, uh, I guess, development in, in that respect in, in those rules. Um, and then the other point to be made is merely that that is only one pocket of the rules uh, of IHL that protect the natural environment. Uh, and to draw attention back to uh, the general rules of IHL that while it is not their specific purpose, still serve to protect the natural environment in times of conflict. Yeah, and even, even when we come to the indirect rules, so say the, the principle of, principles of distinction, proportionality, humanity, um, they do go some way to protecting the environment. So we can say that, you know, if environmental damage is disproportionate, um, it, you know, it would render that attack unlawful. Similarly, with something that is inhumane causes superfluous injury. Uh, but when it comes to the principle of distinction, in many, in many ways, it can be argued that, say, a hill or bombing a mountain pass or bombing, um, even taking out the jungles in Vietnam, they could be used for camouflage. So they are a military objective. Um, so to that extent, do, does uh, if we look at it in terms of these are the specific rules, but even when they're not met, we have the general rules. Is there not a way that the environment still gets, is damaged as a result and because, because it is labeled a military objective? Yeah, I take your point that uh, parts of the natural environment can become military objectives uh, and therefore they can be lawfully attacked and therefore would be would be uh, damaged in a way that would be considered lawful under international humanitarian law. Um, sadly, that is the reality of armed conflict and, and we have the same issue in relation to, uh, to humans, um, that some people are able to be lawfully attacked under international humanitarian law, uh, namely those who are directly participating in, in the hostilities. Um, but uh, what I would say is that there are significant protections uh, that seek to restrict and, and restrain that damage to those military objectives so that no more damage is caused than, than that which is necessary. Uh, so you took the example of uh, the rule of distinction. Um, so the obligation to distinguish between uh, civilian objects and military objectives and to only direct military uh, attacks on, on military objectives. Um, the point that we make uh, in our guidance on this issue in relation to the natural environment uh, is that those rules speak of specific military objectives. So an attacking party needs to identify a specific uh, object uh, which by its location, purpose or use uh, is uh serves a, 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 a um, uh, sorry, um, um, I've lost my, <laughs> lost my train of thought. Um, sorry, uh, a military objective, which by its na nature or locational use um, contributes, you know, military advantage um, to the enemy. So um, it's not sufficient to, for example, set ablaze an entire forest because 
you find some combatants uh, hiding in the forest. You need to identify the specific location of those combatants or the specific area that is in and of itself contributing to the military action of the enemy. Mm, yeah, and, and I also wanted to... Um, I wanted to ask you as well, how do we ensure that there is effective implementation then of IHL rules in protecting the environment? And, and especially when we look at accountability, the only country which has been held responsible has been Iraq after um, it, when it was withdrawing from Kuwait, uh, they burned 600, I think, oil wells. Um, and we saw the, you know, that there was a UN Compensation Commission which was set up. Um, I think that Iraq is still paying back um, all of the compensation that it owes to Kuwait, uh, and I think I think that's going to be fulfilled maybe maybe next year. But we haven't really seen that happen with any other country. Um, there was a general assembly resolution against Israel um, for bombing the GA uh, power station in Lebanon in 2006, but there was no compensation commission. There was nothing by the Security Council. So how do we ensure the effective implementation of IHL, and how do we ensure that there is accountability for environmental damage? Um, so I'll take those as two separate questions, actually. Um, so we do see the enforcement of these rules uh, protecting the natural environment. Uh, so, for example, the International Court of Justice in its 1996 uh, uh, nuclear weapons advisory opinion. Um, we've also seen uh, the ICJ case of the, the DRC in, in Uganda. Um, and we see, uh, you mentioned before, uh, the uh, Claims Commission for Ethiopia and Eritrea. Um, so we do see specific rules uh, acknowledged and enforced uh, and strengthened through the jurisprudence of courts like the International Court of Justice. Uh, we also see it uh, elaborated and enforced uh, through the reactions of the international community, for example. So uh, General Assembly resolutions uh, uh, and, and further efforts uh, by uh, the international community to develop further treaty protections for the environment. All of this is part of the continued development of international law protecting the natural environment. Um, if I can uh, mention uh, specifically in terms of uh, what can we do to ensure better implementation, um, the ICRC has recently updated its guidelines on IHL rules protecting the natural environment. Uh, and so in doing that has identified the existing rules of IHL and also provides commentary um, to clarify, um, understand, uh, better the, the scope of those rules and, and how they might apply using recent examples. Um, uh, but what we really want to achieve through that is to help states and other actors that might need to implement, promote or enforce these rules uh, to support them to do so. And so in particular, um, we have recommendations uh, for states in terms of uh, disseminating these rules um, and integrating them into their armed forces doctrine, education, training and, and disciplinary systems, uh, and then more broadly integrating them into national policy and legal frameworks. So that's a big step that we really want more states to be consciously trying to do in relation to the environment. 
Um, we also recommend uh, that states and other actors adopt measures to increase their understanding of the effects of conflict on the environment before and during military operations. So, for example, conducting assessments of the environmental impact of operations or mapping areas of particular environmental importance or fragility prior to conducting military operations. Uh, and then, as I said, um, you know, throughout the course uh, of a military campaign, uh, paying attention to uh, what environmental impact they've observed and potentially adapting their techniques and their tactics uh, according to those observations. Um, one specific uh, measure that we uh, recommend is to identify and designate areas of particular em environmental importance or fragility as demilitarised zones. Uh, so, for example, you can imagine national parks, natural reserves or endangered species habitats as areas of particular importance uh, that the parties can agree in advance uh, not to use for military purposes. Um, so that can be done by agreement between states as uh, to establish demilitarised zones, uh, but there are also uh, some measures that can be taken unilaterally, for example, um, to declare an area an un, uh, undefended locality. Um, so there's a few uh, proposals around that, and it's not just the ICRC, others like the IUCN um, and the UNEP have looked at other ways to systematically identify and designate uh, these particularly important areas. Um, the, the final uh, step for better implementation of these rules that we recommend uh, is to exchange examples of good practices of measures that, that comply with IHL obligations. Uh, so, for example, that can be done through military trainings uh, and exercises as well as conferences, and the ICRC supports uh, that discussion in a number of fora. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially the the idea of having these demilitarized zones or undefended localities and also doing environmental impact assessments. And, and it's really interesting when we look at, especially, you know, with climate change really ramping up pace, where you have climate change hotspots, you also have conflict hotspots. And, and that's why they call the environment the wealth of the poor, because they're the ones who are more, most reliant on um, on, you know, agricultural land or water wells, that kind of thing. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering also, it, it kind of goes on to my next question, because I think I, I think it's really great for states to be doing something like this and for the ICRC to be pushing for states to be doing, to be, you know, doing these assessments, creating these, these zones, these localities. Um, to what extent then do we see any interaction between IHL and human rights law and environmental law in protecting the environment also and, and kind of how do they fit in together? There's been so much debate about how IHRL and IHL work in tandem, like there's so many modes of you know conflict resolution between these two regimes. And we're kind of seeing now uh, more of a conversation about international environmental law. But at the same time, there's also... Um, there's also a kind of understanding that this won't really apply to non-state groups. Um, IEL is still so state-centric. And even though we've seen more of a rise of human rights obligations being applied to non-state groups when they 
are in effective control of territory. We haven't really seen that with, with regards to environmental law. So, so I think those are two questions merged together in, in the sense of how do these regimes interact, but also how do we uh, how do we ensure that this applies also to non-state actors? Sure, okay. Um, I, I guess I'll restrain my remarks really to the interaction of those other bodies of law with uh, the law of armed conflict um, being the area of expertise and the mandate of, of the ICRC. Um, as with other bodies of law, you know, all of this has come a long way, um, both in terms of treaty uh, treaty law being established and, and promulgated uh, and as well customary international law uh, being formed. And we talked already about some of the examples that have contributed to, to that crystallisation of, of uh, customary rules. Um, the ICRC hasn't looked in great depth uh, at international environmental law and human rights law protecting the environment outside of situations of armed conflict. Um, what we do do in our updated guidelines is to provide a brief overview of the interaction of IHL with some of those other bodies of law. Uh, and the critical principle that I want to share is that the outbreak of armed conflict does not in and of itself terminate or suspend the application of those other rules of international law protecting the natural environment in peacetime, uh, whether they be treaty or, or customary law. Um, so those other rules may complement or inform the IHL rules in times of armed conflict. Uh, and then you can get into the specifics of the intention behind particular treaties. Um, and a, a little bit of that is elaborated in our guidelines. Um, but really, uh, that's a matter that the UN uh, International Law Commission uh, has been considering in greater detail, both as part of its ongoing work uh, to elaborate draft principles on the protection of the environment in relation to armed conflicts. So that's an ongoing program of work. Um, but also in its previous work, its 2011 draft articles on the effects of armed conflicts on treaties. And so that's quite instructive, um, those two pieces of work and, and the work of the ILC more broadly. Yeah, and, and I find the, the ILC taking this up as a mantle is that it's going to be very interesting to see when these draft articles come to light and, and what they include and what they don't. Um, I also wanted to ask... Um, how important diplomacy is in maintaining a framework for the protection of the natural, natural environment. You've been talking about how the ICRC works with states in trying to um, do assessments, localities, zones. And I, I, and I think that's really interesting in the international going forward as we're seeing kind of a retreat from um, like the states more and more likely to not ratify treaties, to withdraw from treaties. Uh, we're seeing a, more of a push for humanitarian diplomacy. Uh, and I th I find it very interesting to see how much of a role the ICRC places in the importance that it placed on diplomacy and also the ways in which it can be used. We saw that the Paris Agreement was a huge feat for diplomacy because you had a treaty negotiated after everyone you know, did not think that we would be able to come to the table and agree on anything, especially after the failure of the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, so how important is diplomacy in, in seeing this go forward, whether that's interstate, whether that's, you know, civil society organizations putting like lobbying states or, or anything like that? Um, so I guess what I would say again is that we're putting the emphasis on 
not developing the rules as such, not creating new rules. And so the ICRC guidelines don't create any new rules. It just calls it how we see the existing uh, law. Um, but rather on, uh, yeah, putting that emphasis on implementation. So how can we ensure that these rules don't just remain on the paper but are actually effectively put into practice so that we see the protection of the environment in armed conflict? Um, so in that respect, when we talk about diplomacy, what we might actually really be considering is what efforts states can take to support one another to uh, identify good practices, uh, to share good practices and to encourage others to take those up in their own operations. Um, so this ties in slightly with uh, another initiative of the ICRC, uh, which is called the Support Relationships and Armed Conflict Initiative, or, or SRI. Um, the and and that looks at how actors who support one another in relation to an armed conflict so potentially provide support to parties to an armed conflict um how that relationship uh can be a source of positive influence uh for uh, the protection of affected populations for the protection of the environment uh and and for respective of ihl um, and so in relation to that, we have done a little bit of work looking at how partners uh, can actually support one another to improve their practices in relation to the protection of the environment. Um, so, you know, for example, uh, can you provide uh, uh, technical expertise, support your partner with technical expertise or share with them your environmental assessments or the, you know, the mapping of fragile areas? Um, uh, can, can military training better incorporate those measures to, to really uh, identify and uh, adapt uh, tactics, techniques and, and, and practices uh, to uh, the environment and the protection of the environment? Um, and, and how else can you, through diplomatic channels, influence each other and, and really emphasise the need to protect the environment during uh, military operations? Um, another area uh, separate from that really is uh, in the area of weapons treaties. So um, uh, the... A number of weapons treaties actually provide rules that uh, serve to minimise environmental damage just by minimising and regulating the use of, of the weapons um, and then also make specific provisions uh, for environmental remediation or victim assistance or clearance and marking of mines and, sorry, other um, explosive remnants of war. Uh, and so... That's not necessarily the primary purpose of those treaties, but they do have an important role to play in minimising some of that environmental damage and degradation. Uh, and particularly when we look at the assistance provisions in those treaties, increasingly there is a provision around the requirement for states' parties to provide international cooperation. Uh, and so through that, we see that there is that scope for uh, states who are potentially affected by uh, specific uh, weapons um, to call upon others and to receive support for activities like humanitarian demining. 
Um, and I believe as well that's a little bit of an area um, that uh, the ILC draft principles are looking at as well in terms of restoration um, and, and protection of the environment during peace processes um, uh, as well as reparations in relation to environmental damage. Oh, okay, that's that's incredibly interesting. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of the weapons treaties and having the international assistance scope. That that's incredibly interesting going forward, especially um, when some countries are more affected by climate change than others, and increases the vulnerability of those already incredibly vulnerable. Um, thank you so much. This is such an interesting discussion, and we're so glad that we could have you with us. Uh, thank you to everyone tuning in at home. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll join us for future episodes.